8. Introduce another element or dimension into speech, the number of sounds, not being sufficient for the reproduction of all the spoken ideas, has been multiplied by giving these various sounds in different tones, it is as if the element of music were introduced according to rule into speech, and as if one had not only to remember the words in everything he wished to say, but the tune also, the meow people being so low down in the intellectual scale, and having never been accustomed to study, it was felt by the promoters of the written language that they should be as simple as possible, and hence they looked about for some system which could be readily grasped by these ignorant people. It was necessary that the system be absolutely phonetic and understood easily, by adapting the system used in shorthand, of putting the vowel marks in different positions by the side of the consonant signs. Mr. Pollard and his assistant found that they could solve their problem. The signs for the consonants are larger than the vowel signs, and the position of the latter by the side of the former gives the tone or musical note required. At the present time there are thousands of meow now able to read and write, and the work of this enterprising missionary has conferred an inestimable boon upon this people. When I went among the meow I was able, after ten minutes instruction, to stand up and sing their hymns and read their gospels with them. Meow women, who heretofore had never hoped to read, are now put in possession of the word of God, and the simplicity of the written language enables them almost at once to read the story of the cross. Surely this is one of the outstanding features of mission work in the whole of China. I hope at some future date to publish a work devoted exclusively to my travels among the Hua Miao, for I feel that their story, no matter how simply written, is one of the great and old romances of the world. As a people, they are extremely fascinating in life and customs, emotional, large-hearted, and absolutely distinct from, with hardly a manner of daily life in common with, the Chinese. Mission work among the Mia whilst referring to mission work. It is a great privilege for the writer to add a word of most deserved eulogy of the United Methodist Mission at Jiaotong and Tanjashuanfu, and to the kindness shown by the missionaries towards me when I came, an absolute stranger, among them in May, 1909. It is to two members of this mission that I owe a lifelong debt of gratitude, for it was Mr. and Mrs. Evans, of Tanjashuanfu, who saved my life. A week or two after I left Jiaotong, as is recorded in a subsequent chapter, it was in the old days of the Bible Christian mission in which the individual members of no mission in the whole of China worked with more zeal and lower stipends that a most interesting development in the mission took place. The mass of the Miao are the serfs of the descendants of their ancient kings, who are large landowners, and the Miao are tenants. In 1905 the Miao heard of the gospel, and came to listen to the preaching and thousands came in batches at one time and another to the mission house. Their movements thus aroused suspicion among the Chinese. There was a good deal of persecution and personal violence, and at one time it looked as if there might be serious trouble. But the danger quieted down. The chieftain gave land, the Miao contributed 100 pounds sterling, and themselves put up a chapel large enough to accommodate 600 people. A year later, a thousand at a time crowded their simple sanctuary and in 1907 nearly 6,000 were members or probationers, and the work has steadily progressed ever since. I am indebted to the Ref. H. Parsons, who had charge of the work at the time I passed through this district, and whose guest I was for several months, for the following interesting details regarding the methods adopted in the running of this enormous mission field. Mr. Parsons is assisted in his work by his genial wife, who is a most ardent worker, and a capable Miao linguist. 
Mrs. Parsons regularly addresses congregations of several hundreds of meow, and has traveled on journeys often with her husband, and such work as hers, with several others in this mission, is a testimony to the wisdom of a system advocating the increase of the number of lady workers on the mission field in China. The Inhoyusu are right behind and there is a class of people around Jiaotong who are called Nusu, a people who, although occupying the Jiaotong plain at the time the Chinese arrived, are believed not to be the aboriginals of the district. What I actually know about this people is not much. I have heard a good deal, but it must not be understood that I publish this as absolutely the final word. People who have lived in the district for many years do not agree, so that for a mere traveler the task of getting infallible data would be quite formidable. No tribe is more widely known than the Nusu, with their innumerable tribal distinctions and hereditary peculiarities so perplexing to the inquirer into far western China ethnology. The Nusu are a very fine, tall race, with comparatively fair complexions, suggesting a mixture of Mongolian with some other straight-featured people, of their origin. However, little can be vouched for, and with it we will have nothing to do here. But at the present time the news who provide a good deal of interest from the fact that their power as tyrannic landlords and feudal chiefs is fast dying, and it may be that in a couple of decades, or a still shorter time, a people who, by obstinate self-reliance and great dislike to the Chinese, have remained unaffected by the absorbing spirit of the arbitrary Chinese, will have passed beyond the veil of personality. Even now, however, they own and rule enormous tracts of country notably that part lying on the right bank of the river of golden sand in northeast Yunnan. Some are very wealthy. One man may own vast tracts bigger than Yorkshire. In this tract there may be 100 villages, all paying tribute to him and subject to the vagaries of his vilest despotism. From his tyranny his struggling tenantry have no redress. So long as the Ipai and the local name of the Nusu greases the palm of the squeezing Chinese Mandarin in whose nominal control the district extends, he may run right as he pleases. Social law and order are unknown. Justice is a complete contradiction in terms, and whilst one is in the midst of it, it is difficult to realize that in China today the China which all the world believes to be awakening there exists a condition of things which will allow man to torture, to plunder, to murder and to indulge to the utmost degree the whims of an ironic and devilish temperament. Slave trading is common. If a tenant cannot pay his tribute, he sells himself for a few tails and becomes the slave of his former landlord. And if he would save his head treads carefully, in the early days, when different clans were driven farther into the hills, they each clinched as much land as they could, in course of time, by petty quarrels, civil wars, and common feuds. The new Sioux were gradually thinned out. The Miaotiasi the men of the hills and the serfs of the landlords, who 4,000 years ago were a powerful race in their own kingdom became the tenants of the new Sioux, whose rule is still marked by the grossest infamy possible to be practiced on the human race. All the methods of torture which in the old days were associated with the Chinese are still in vogue, in many cases in an aggravated form. I have personally seen the tortures, and have listened to the stories of the victims but it would not bear description in print. It must not, however, be understood that to be a Nusu is to be a landlord. By no means, for in the gradual process of the survival of the fittest, when the weaker landlords were murdered by their stronger compatriots and their lands seized, only a small percentage of the tribe in this area have been able to hold sway. However, wherever there are landlords in this part of the country, they are always Nusu or Chinese. 
the meow or, at least, the hua meow, own no lands, and our body and soul in the tyrannic clutch of the tyrannic Ipian. Then, again, in the new Sioux tribe there are various hereditary distinctions enabling a man to claim caste advantage. There are the black bones, as they style themselves, the aristocrats of the race, and the white bones, the lower breeds, who obey to the letter their wealthier brethren or anybody who has authority over them, the new Sioux, who are a totally different race and a much better class than the Miao, are believed to have been driven from the Jiaotong Plain, preferring migration to fighting, and many trekked across the Yangtze locally called the Kinsha River into country now marked on good maps as the Manza country. It appears that the following are the two important branches, I the black Nasu farmers and landowners, I I the white Tiusu generally slaves, other minor classes are, I the lakes or red Nusu mostly blacksmiths, I I the AUTSI mostly felt makers, who rightly or wrongly claim relationship with the Chinese, I I I another class, who are mostly basket makers, the two great divisions, however, are the white and the black, the latter class themselves the owners of land, claim that all the white were originally slaves, and that those who are now free have escaped at some previous period from servitude. Men, as usual among such tribes, are scarcely distinguishable from the ordinary Hanren. It is the women, with their peculiar headdress and picturesque skirts, who maintain the distinguishing features of the race. For the most part, the Nusu are not idolaters, no idols are in their houses. That portion of the tribe which migrated across the Yangtze, secure among the mountains, has never ceased to harass the Chinese, who now dwell on land which the new Sioux themselves once tilled, or at least inhabited, but they have been driven into a remoter districts, and are only found away from the highways of Chinese travel. The race, too, is dying out in this area at all events and the new Sioux themselves reckon that their numbers have decreased by one half during the last 30 years. This is one of the saddest facts. The insanitation of their dwellings, their rough diet, and frequent ridings in wine, opium and other evils, are quickly playing havoc in their ranks, giving the strong the opportunity of enriching themselves at the expense of the weak. With frequent fighting about the division of land, Europeans who can speak the language of the new Sioux are numbered on the fingers of one hand, to one who has traveled in this neighborhood for any length of time. It must be apparent that the unique method generally adopted by the new Sioux, that island the landlord class, to get rich quickly is to kill off their next door neighbor. The lives these men live with nothing but scandal and licentiousness to pass their time, are grossly and horribly wicked when viewed by the broadest minded westerner. They all live in fear of their lives, and are each afraid of the others, all entertaining a secret hatred and all ever on the alert to devise some safe scheme to murder the owner of some land they are anxious of annexing to their own and in the doing of the deed to save their own necks. If they succeed, they are accounted clever men. As I write, I hear of a man, quite a youngster, himself an exceedingly wealthy man, who killed his brother and confiscated his property with no compunction whatever. When tackled on the subject, he said he could do nothing else for if he had not killed his brother his brother would have killed him yet there is no sense of crime as we of the West understand it, and nothing is feared from the Chinese law. A man kills a slave, tortures him to death, and when the Chinese Mandarin is appealed to, if he is at all, he looks wise and says, I quite see your point, but I can do nothing. The murdered man was the landlord's slave, and, with a gentle wave of his three-inch fingernail, he explains how a man may kill his slave, 
his wife, or his son and the law can do nothing, that island if he compensates the Mandarin. A new Zoo looked upon a girl one day, when he was out collecting tribute, she was handsome, and he instructed his men to take her, she refused, a sum of 100 ounces of silver was offered to anyone who would kidnap her and carry her off to his harem, eventually he got the girl, and had her father tortured and then put to death because he would not deliver his daughter over to him, yet there is no redress, new Zoo women, their feet and bound, with high foreheads and well-cut features, with fiery eyes set in not unkindly faces, tall and healthy, would be considered handsome women in any country in Europe. They rarely intermarry with other tribes. A good deal of affection certainly exists sometimes between husband and wife and between parents and children. But the looseness of the marriage relation leads to an ending strife. Many Europeans, travelers and missionaries, have been murdered in the country inhabited by the independent Lolo people. Although I have not personally been through any of that country, I have been on the very outskirts and have lived for a long time among the people there. I found them a pleasant hospitable race, fairly easy to get on with, and it must not be averred that, because they consider their natural enemy, the Chinese, the man to be robbed and murdered, and because they kill off their fellow landlords in order the more quickly to get rich, that they treat all strangers alike. Among the Europeans who have suffered death at their hands, it is probable that in some way the cause was traceable to their own bearing towards the people either a total lack of knowledge of their language or an attitude which caused suspicion. Among the new Sioux, strong as this feudal lifestyle island the Chinese are fast gaining permanent influence. Their dissolute and drunken and inhuman daily practices are tending to work out among this people their own destruction. And in years to come in this neighborhood the traveler will be perplexed at finding here and there a fine specimen of an upstanding Chinese with clean-cut face, straight of feature and straight of limb, with a peculiar Mongol look about him, he will be one of the surviving specimens of a race of people, the new Sioux, whose forgotten historical records would do much to clear up the doubt attaching to Indochina and Tibet Burma ethnology, the first new Sioux chieftain to come to Jiaotong, a man who was renowned as a tyrannical brute, was one Yen Sang Fu, who frequently gouged out the eyes of those who disobeyed his commands, and his descendants are said to have inherited a good many of this tyrant's vices. The landlords prey upon their weaker brethren, and at last, with infinite sagacity, the Chinese government steps in to stop the quarrels, confiscates the whole of the property, and thus reduces the new Sioux land to immediate control of Chinese authorities. The new Sioux are, of course, entirely dependent upon the land for their living. They till the soil and rear cattle, and the greatest calamity that can come upon any family is that their land shall be taken from them. To be landless involves degradation as well as poverty, and very severe hardship is the lot of men who have been deprived of this means of subsistence. For those who own no land, but who are merely tenants of the Tiuma, as there seems to be no security of tenure, but still, if the wishes and demands of the landlords are complied with, one family may till the same farm for many successive generations. The terms on which land is held are peculiar. The rental agreed upon is nominal. Large tracts of country are rented for a pig or a sheep or a fowl, with a little corn per year. Beside this nominal rent, the landlord has the right to make levies on his tenants on all special occasions, such as funerals, weddings, or for any other extraordinary expenses. He can also require his tenants with their cattle to render services. This system necessarily leads to much oppression and injustice. 
It is also said that if the family is hard pressed by a tiumut and reduced to extreme poverty, they will make themselves over to him on condition that a portion of his land be given them to cultivate. Such people are called caught slaves, as distinguished from hereditary, and the eldest children become the absolute property of the landlord and are generally given as attendants upon his wife and daughters. Every farmer owns a large number of slaves, who live in the same compound as himself. These people do all the work of the farm, while the master employs himself as his fancy leads him. Over these unfortunate people the owner has absolute control. All their affairs are managed by him. His girl slaves he marries off to other men's slave boys, and similarly obtains wives for his male slaves. The lot of these unfortunate people is hard beyond description, being considered but little more valuable than the cattle they tend. The food given to them is often inferior to the corn upon which the master's horse is fed. The cruel beatings and torturings they have been subject to have completely broken their spirit, and now they seem unable to exist apart from their masters. Very seldom do any of them try to escape, for no one will give them shelter, and the punishment awarded a recaptured slave is so severe as to intimidate the most daring. These poor folk are born in slavery, married in slavery, and they die in slavery. It is not uncommon to meet with Chinese slaves, both boys and girls, in new Sioux families. These have either been kidnapped and sold, or their parents, unable to nourish them, have bartered them in exchange for food. Their purchasers marry them to Tiusu, and their lot is thrown in with the slave class. One's heart is wrung with anguish sometimes as he thinks of what cruelty and wretchedness exist among the hills of this benighted district. Even here, however, light is beginning to shine for some adherents of the Christian religion have changed their slaves into tenants, thus showing the way to the ultimate solution of this difficult problem. The life in a new Sioux household is not very complex. The cattle are driven out early in the morning. As soon as the sun has risen, they remain out until the breakfast hour, and then return to the stables and rest during the heat of the day, going out again in the cool hours. The food of the household is prepared by the slaves, under the direction of the lady of the house. There is no refined cooking, for the new Sioux despises well-cooked food, and complains that it never satisfies him. He has a couplet which runs, if you eat raw food, you become a warrior, if you eat it cooked, you suffer hunger. No chairs or tables are found in a genuine new Sioux house. The food is served up in a large bowl placed on the floor. The family sit around, and each one helps himself with a large wooden spoon. At the present time the refinements of Chinese civilization have been adopted by a large number of new Sioux, and the homes of the wealthier people are as well furnished as those of the middle-class Chinese of the district. The women of the households also spend much time making their own and their children's clothes. The men have adopted Chinese dress, but the women, in most cases, retain their tribal costume with its large turban-like headdress, its plaited skirt and intricately embroidered coat. All this is made by hand and the choicest years of maidenhood are occupied in preparing the clothes for the wedding day. The new Sioux, it would seem, used not to beg a wife, but rather obtained her by main force. At the present day, while the milder method generally prevails, there are still survivals of the ancient custom. The betrothal truly takes place very early, even in infancy, and at the ceremony a fowl is killed, and each contracting party takes a rib, but as the young folk grow to marriageable age, the final negotiations have to be made. These are purposely prolonged until the bridegroom, growing angry, gathers his friends and makes an attack on the maiden's home, arming themselves with cudgels, 
they approached secretly, and protecting their heads and shoulders with their felt cloaks, they rushed towards the house. Strenuous efforts are made by the occupants to prevent their entering, and severe blows are exchanged. When the attacking party has succeeded in gaining an entrance, peace is proclaimed, and wine and huge chunks of flesh are provided for their entertainment. Occasionally during these fights the maiden's home is quite dismantled, the negotiations being ended. Preparations are made to escort the bride to her future home. Heavily veiled, she is supported on horseback by her brothers, while her near relatives, all fully armed, attend her. On arriving at the house, a scuffle ensues. The veil is snatched from the bride's face by her relatives, who do their utmost to throw it onto the roof, thus signifying that she will rule over the occupants when she enters. The bridegroom's people on the contrary try to trample it upon the doorstep as an indication of the rigor with which the newcomer will be subjected to the ruling of the head of the house. Much blood is shed, and people are often seriously injured in these skirmishes. The new bride remains for three days in a temporary shelter before she is admitted to the home. A girl having once left her parents' home to become a wife, waits many years before she pays a return visit. Anciently the minimum time was three years, but some allow ten or more years to elapse before the first visit home is paid. Two or three years are then often spent with the parents. Many friends and relatives attend any visitor, for with the new Sioux a large following is considered a sign of dignity and importance. When a child is born a tree is planted, with the hope that as the tree grows so also will the child develop. The fear of disease lies heavily upon the new Sioux people, and their disregard of the most elementary sanitary laws makes them very liable to attacks of sickness. They understand almost nothing about medicine and consequently resort to superstitious practices in order to ward off the evil influences, when it is known that disease has visited a neighbor's house. A pole, seven feet long, is erected in a conspicuous place in a thicket some distance from the house to be guarded. On the pole an old plowshare is fixed, and it is supposed that when the spirit who controls the disease sees the plowshare he will retire to a distance of three homesteads. A fever called no Nomadzi works great havoc among the new zoo every year and the people are very much afraid of it. No person will stay by the sick bed to nurse the unfortunate victim. Instead, food and water are placed by his bedside and, covered with his quilt, he is left at the mercy of the disease. Since as the fever progresses the patient will perspire, heavy stones are placed on the quilt, that it may not be thrown off, and the sick person take cold. Many unfortunate sufferer has through this strange practice died from suffocation. After a time the relatives will return to see what course the disease has taken. This fever seems to yield to quinine, for Mr. John Lee has seen several persons recover to whom he had administered this drug. When a man dies, his relatives, as soon as they receive the news, hold in their several homes a feast of mourning called by them the Zay. A pig or sheep is sacrificed at the doorway, and it is supposed that intercourse is thus maintained between the living persons and the late departed spirit. The near kindred, on hearing of the death of a relative, take a fowl and strangle it, the shedding of its blood is not permissible. This fowl is cleaned and skewered, and the mourner then proceeds to the house where the deceased person is lying, and sticks this fowl at the head of the corpse as an offering. The more distant relatives do not perform this rite, but each leads a sheep to the house of mourning, and the son of the deceased man strikes each animal three times with a white wand, while the paimo priest or magician stands by and announcing the sacrifice by calling so-and-so, giving of course the name, presents the soft woolly offering, 
formerly the new suburban they're dead, said a new sea youth to me years ago. The thought of our friends' bodies either turning to corruption or being eaten by wild beasts is distasteful to us, and therefore we burn our dead. The corpse is burnt with wood, and during the cremation the mourners arrange themselves around the fire and chant and dance. The ashes are buried, and the ground leveled. This custom is still adhered to among the new Sioux of the independent Lolo territory or more correctly Papu country of western Sichuan. The tribesmen who dwell in the neighborhood of Wining and Jiaotong have adopted burial as the means of disposing of their dead, adding some customs peculiar to themselves. On the day of the funeral the horse which the deceased man was in the habit of riding is brought to the door and saddled by the pemo. The command is then given to lead the horse to the grave. All the mourners follow, and marching or dancing in intertwining circles, cross and recross the path of the led horse until the poor creature, grown frantic with fear, rushes and kicks in wild endeavor to escape from the confusion. The whole company then raise a great shout and call, The soul has come to ride the horse. The soul has come to ride the horse. A contest then follows among the women of the deceased man's household for the possession of this horse, which is henceforth regarded as of extreme value. It is difficult to discover much about the religion of the new Sioux, because so many of their ancient customs have fallen into disuse during the intercourse of the people with the Chinese. At the ingathering of the buckwheat, when the crop is stacked on the threshing floor, and the work of threshing is about to begin, the simple formula, thank you, Isomo, is used. Isomo seems to be a spirit who has control over the crops, whether good or evil. It is not easy to determine. Isomo is not God. For at present, when the new Sioux wish to speak of God, they use the word so, which means master. In the independent territory of the new Sioux, to the west of Sichuan, the term used for God is India, and a new Sioux who has much intercourse with the independent people contends that there are three names indicative of God, each representing different functions if not persons of the Godhead. These names are, India, Khni, Yumpama, the new Sioux believe in ancestor worship. And perhaps the most interesting feature of their religion is the peculiar form this worship takes. Instead of an ancestral tablet such as the Chinese use, the new Sioux worship a small basket lolo about as large as a duck's egg and made of split bamboo. This lolo contains small bamboo tubes an inch or too long, and as thick as an ordinary Chinese pen handle. In these tubes are fastened a piece of grass and a piece of sheep's wool. A man and his wife would be represented by two tubes, and if he had two wives, an extra tube would be placed in the lolo. At the ceremony of consecration the pemo attends, and a slave is set apart for the purpose of attending to all the rites connected with the worship of the deceased person. The lolo is sometimes placed in the house, but more often on a tree in the neighborhood or it may be hidden in a rock. For persons who are short-lived, the ancestral lolo is placed in a crevice in the wall of some forsaken and ruined building. Every three years the lolo is changed, and the old one burned. The term Lolo, by which the new Sioux are generally known, is a contemptuous nickname given them by the Chinese in reference to this peculiar method of venerating their ancestors. Hill worship is another important feature of new Sioux religious life. Most important houses are built at the foot of a hill and sacrifice is regularly offered on the hillside in the fourth month of each year. The Pemo determines which is the most propitious day, and the Tuma and his people proceed to the appointed spot. A limestone rock with an old tree trunk near is chosen as an altar, and a sheep and pig are brought forward by the Tuma. The Pemo, having adjusted his clothes, sits cross-legged before the altar, 
and begins intoning his incantations in a low muttering voice. The sacrifice is then slain, and the blood poured beneath the altar, and a handful of rice and a lump of salt are placed beneath the stone. Some person then gathers a bundle of green grass, and the pemo, having finished intoning, the altar is covered, and all return to the house. The pemo then twists the grass into a length of rope, which he hangs over the doorway of the house. Out of a piece of willow a small arrow is made, and a bow similar in size is cut out of a peach tree. These are placed on the doorposts. On a piece of soft white wood a figure of a man is roughly carved, and this, with two sticks of any soft wood placed crosswise, is fastened to the rope hanging over the doorway, on each side of which two small sticks are placed. The pemo then proceeds with his incantation, muttering, from now, henceforth and forever will the evil spirits keep away from this house. Most news who at the present time observe the New Year festival on the same date and with the same customs as the Chinese. Formerly this was not so, and even now in the remoter districts New Year's Day is observed on the first day of the tenth month of the Chinese year. A pig and sheep are killed and cleaned, and hung in the house for three days. They are then taken down, cut up and cooked. The family sit on buckwheat straw in the middle of the chief room of the house. The head of the house invites the others to drink wine, and the feasting begins. Presently one will start singing, and all join in this song. How firm is this house of mine? Throughout the year its hearth fire has not ceased to burn. My food corn is abundant. I have silver and also cash. My cattle have increased to herds. My horses and mules have all white for its cocoa ha 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 cocoa. My sons are filial. My wife is virtuous. In the midst of flesh and wine we sleep. Our happiness reaches unto heaven. Truly glorious is this glad new year. A scene of wild indulgence then frequently follows. The new supersess a written language. Their books were originally made of sheepskin, but paper is now used. The art of printing was unknown, and many books are said to have been lost. The books are illustrated, but the drawings are extremely crude. T footnotes, footnote T, a good deal of information in this chapter was obtained from an article by the ref. C. E. Hicks, published in the Chinese Recorder for March, 1910. The portion quoted is taken bodily from this excellent article. Fifth Journey, Zhao Tong Fu to Tong Shuan Fu, Chapter XI, Revolting Sights Compensated for by Scenery, Most Eventful Day in the Trip, Buying, 